Shut it down! Shut it down! Shut it down! The anti-nuke movement existed prior to Yankees' construction, but it wasn't until 1978, during a protest in Seabrook, New Hampshire, that it really gathered momentum. It sparked a, a movement all across the United States. Uh, people protesting the nuclear power plants being built or operated in their backyards. One of the early advocates of renewable energy here in Vermont has died. John Warshow turned his 1970s activism into a business that was at the forefront of alternative energy development in the state. In the 1980s, we, we being the independent power producers and the utility companies, uh, doubled the amount of in-state hydro. Turning his activism into action, Clamshell Alliance co-founder John Warshow became a clean energy entrepreneur. He didn't just protest nuclear power, he built an alternative way of doing things. Warshow was one of scores of community-based social justice organizers who passed away this year. People doing crucial work in their communities, whose deaths didn't make headlines, but who nonetheless helped push important changes in their lifetimes. I'm Andrew Stelzer. On this edition of Making Contact, we'll meet several other fallen heroes of 2015. My name is Rob Yanagida. I've been uh, active with a national network of visionary organizers, which is a group that Grace Lee Boggs helped form. I believe that we are at the point now in the United States where a movement is beginning to emerge. I think that the calamity, the quagmire of the Iraq war, the outsourcing of jobs, the dropout of young people from the educational system, the monstrous growth of the prison industrial complex, the planetary emergency in which we are engulfed at the present moment is re demanding that instead of just complaining about these things, instead of just protesting about these things, we begin to look for and hope for another way of living. I met Grace Lee Boggs in the 1970s. She was already considered an activist elder at the time. She often identified as being part of the major social movements in the 75 years of her activism. Um, Marxist movements during the World War II era, up until um, today, some of the uh, urban crisis sort of activism in the city of Detroit, where she's been based for most of her life. She became to me, especially with her longevity, this incredible link to the history of activism going back many decades. She, she maintained this incredible link to understanding political history and um, relating it to what's going on uh, right now. First of all, we have to understand that a revolutionary period is also a counter-revolutionary period. That there is a deep unrest, a deep destabilization that has taken place in the structures of the society. And that this began with the civil rights movement. They began saying that human relations 
matter more than economic growth. And it came from black people because the economic growth had taken place so much on their backs. And then it began to embrace women, people from the ecology movement, young people, who also were being threatened, of course, by the Vietnam War. And all these things came together. My name is Michelle Puckett. I'm a member of the National Network of Visionary Organizers that formed in response to some organizing that was happening in Detroit where they invited people from around the country to come in and learn about Grace's concept of visionary organizing. And I totally had my whole life changed by it. I had come out of the Occupy Oakland movement and just really um, had a lot of disillusionment about protest organizing. And then I read her book, Sustainable Activism for the 21st Century, The Next American Revolution, and knew that I needed to go learn from this elder who had not burnt out and who had had her ideas continually evolve over um, the course of a 75-year struggle. There was a time when we believed that if we just achieved political power, we would solve all our problems. And I think what we've learned through the experiences of the Russian Revolution, all those revolutions, that those who become, who try to get power in the state become part of the state. They become locked into the practices. And we have to begin creating new practices. It's not like we don't need to be resisting the atrocities that are happening in our lives. But what Grace was trying to point us to is that um, the landscape has fundamentally shifted because of various historical forces in terms of um, the effectiveness of basically lobbying um, a representative democracy. And she really believed in participatory democracy. And she really, really pushed us to not just protest what we didn't like, but to make projections and think long and hard and work together to build a new society from the ground up that works for everyone. We are not able to look sufficiently at the events of our period in a historical manner, that we do not recognize that we have a nation of empire, actually, entered into an indigenous revolution. Losing grace is really about losing an elder who has a very, very long view of history, who um, never burned out, never gave up, and never saw an end point in what the struggle looks like. I was arrested because he said he was taking me in to do a gender search. Evan says that personal search did not happen, but harassment did. I was called to it, I was called the thing, and I was repeatedly threatened of them do, performing a gender search on me. My name is Everett Renee Harvey Thompson. Um, I'm the former co-director for the Racial Justice Action Center, um, where we had two um, projects. Uh, one, Solutions Not Punishment Coalition, that worked with trans and gender non-conforming folk, um, and Women on the Rise, working with formerly incarcerated women. We're based in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and Juan Evans, uh, for me, Juan was my brother, my best friend, and um, a beautiful colleague with a wonderful, wise, wild spirit, an ability to, to really drive home why dignity mattered. 
and why that his life mattered and why fighting for his life and fighting for his own dignity was connected to fighting for everyone else's dignity. Uh, why that he shouldn't have been stopped by the cops or harassed is the same way that no one should be stopped for the co by the cops and harassed for just being who he was. Gary's Point Police, I will not give you my courage. I will not give you my dignity. I will not live in fear of you. And I will not let you shame and humiliate me into submission. I heard what you think of me and my community with all of the names you called me, the it, the thing, and you repeatedly promised to do a general search on me, even side the road. And when I stood my ground and I said loudly, you don't have the right to search my genitals, your response was, I have the right to search your mother's genital to find out who you are. When the East Point Police Department pulled him aside and tried to do a gender search um, on the side of the road, that spurred him to really strategize and organize. And he organized us to go after the East Point Police Department. And he was brave enough to actually put himself out there to disclose his, um, you know, that he was trans and to really say, I don't want this to happen to anyone else. It's not about me. You laughed in my face. And I will unapologetically tell you who I am. I am not an it. I am not a thing. I am trans. And you don't have the right to arrest me for being trans. And all that was said and all that was done, I still stand with my dignity intact. And I still stand unafraid of you. And you will not search my genitals. He organized, he was able to bring um, together the community, the LGBT and the transgender community um, and allies to actually really push for um, systemic changes within the East Point Police Department, which also spurred the Atlanta Police Department to kind of follow suit. And so um, through this, it really put people on notice that you can't just arbitrarily stop people. And if you do stop people, you can't just say, I'm gonna search you on the side of the street and not think that we're not gonna see you and that we're not going to um, push back. You can see this gate now. This gate now, it's linked Shuhada Street with the old city from here. And it's closed completely with the checkpoint. The settlers, as you see, they are uh, behind uh, the gate from here. They used to come here. The soldiers allowed them to come here in order to unite the Palestinians. And they made a tour for them. They pretended that all of Hebron, in, in unity, it belongs to the Jews, not to the Palestinians. And they have to concentrate on each here in this place in order to kick the Palestinians out and to take it. They encourage the youngs. You can realize from the tour that most of them are youngs and they are learning them how to hit the Arabs, how to kick them out and how to let to take their houses from them by confiscating it from yeah, the Palestinians. Yeah. I am Cham Sharabati. I am a resident of uh, the city of Hebron. I am an activist with the Hebron Defense Committee. It is a non-violence uh, resistance uh, committee to the Israeli settlements and uh, racist and colonization practices of the Israeli and the Zionist movement in Palestine. 
and uh, I am a human rights worker for the Palestinian human rights organization Al-Haq. I knew uh, my friend Hashem Yunus uh, Azze for the past 20 years or even more. Uh, Hashem was uh, a person who used to live in uh, the Tel Romeda neighborhood in the city uh, where he have uh, extreme settlers living right above his house as he lives in a hilly area so the settlers live uh, in a higher area than his uh, house. I used to visit Hashem with uh, many internationals to listen to his story and the, the suffering of him and his family. The settlers, they did a lot of things against us and they cut my pipe, which feeds my house. We stay about three years without water and we used to buy bottles. They throw garbage, empty bottles, stones and everything. Also, they came and attacked my wife when she was pregnant for three months and she lost her pregnancy. The second time my wife was pregnant with four months, they came and attacked her and she lost the second pregnancy. Later, they really destroyed all of the furniture inside it and they beat me with the back of the guns and destroyed my feet and from my face. That was maybe part of his uh, coping strategies, uh, you know, feeling, you know, that there are people coming and listening to his suffering and so on from one side. And uh, it was a way on passing his message to the world. In many cases, Hashem did not only receive the visitors just passing by his house and listening to his stories, but also his house was a house for many internationals who came and visited Palestine and Hebron to learn about you know, the suffering of the Palestinian people. So uh, they catch my nephew in this place exactly when he was nine years old. They put a stone in his mouth and they smashed his teeth with the stones and the soil of his teeth. The house of Hashem and the neighborhood has been declared by the Israeli authorities as a closed military zone since the 30th of October. In the past, as I said, we used to visit them with some hardships. Now, no foreigner, no other Palestinian who does not live in the neighborhood can visit them. We lost one of the, uh, our uh, advocates uh, of the Palestinian suffering, one prominent advocate for the Palestinian people. You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now let's hear some more stories of some of the fallen heroes of 2015. This is last year's Time Magazine's Father's Day story. It featured 15 fathers. 13 were white, two were Latino, and zero were African American. This despite the fact that black men make up 12% of all fathers. And it's this kind of reporting that perpetuates the inaccurate stereotype of the absentee black father. The reality? The CDC just released a report 
that documented that black men are as involved, if not more involved, with children, with their children. Hi, my name is Martin Reynolds, and um, I'm senior fellow for strategic planning, actually for the Maynard Institute for Journalism Education. Dory Maynard was a champion for diversity. She was the president of the institute that bore her name. It was started back in, in the mid-1970s by a group of journalists concerned about, including her father and Roy Ahrens and others, concerned about the lack of diversity in traditionally in news organizations, primarily newspapers at that time. And she was the person who was laser focused on addressing these issues of inequity in journalism and in media. What my dad taught me from a very early age is about the power and the promise of the media. But he also taught me about the problem. And the problem is our perceptions of people are greatly informed by the media. And when it comes to the depiction of African-American boys and men, the media focuses primarily on crime, sports, and entertainment, way out of proportion with their actual involvement. And that's what leads to the criminalization and discrimination. And she was someone who worked very hard to step into boardrooms and uh, newsrooms that were very male and very white and talk to them in a way uh, that they could understand about how they could improve their coverage, how they should approach community, uh, so that the news, the stories that were told were reflective of the community that they were intended to speak about. This country cannot be the country we want it to be if its story is told by only one group of citizens. So our solution is to break the cycle and to create a new cycle where accurate coverage of people of color shifts public perceptions, allowing us to create a climate where we can enact public policies and laws that benefit everybody. I mean, think about all that has happened in the past year with uh, Ferguson, with Baltimore, with Charleston, South Carolina, these various shootings, these Chicago, the revelations of Officer Van Dyke who uh, shot the young man and the city covered it up. All the things that have happened on college campuses. Uh, there has been so much going on right now where her voice, her perspective, her wisdom could be lent her voice in terms of the stories that she may write or the training that she may help to to provide to news organizations that are covering these issues and that quite frankly are less equipped now than ever to be able to cover these complex social issues in large part because survival is what they're concerned about and their staffs are less diverse than they've ever been. I got set up on a sting operation, you know, a vice cop called and made an appointment with me. And then a few minutes after he got there, there were 17 cops in mm. my apartment. Uh, several of them pulled their guns on me and they were screaming at me. I was standing there in lingerie and they were screaming at me to put my hands on my head. And all I could think of was that I needed to get to my clothes. My name is Naomi Akers, and I currently am on the board of directors with the St. James Infirmary. 
The St. James Infirmary is an occupational health and safety clinic for sex workers and their families, and we're located in San Francisco. I first met Shannon Williams shortly after her very public arrest in Berkeley. She was arrested for prostitution and she had been teaching. She was a, a Berkeley um, school district teacher and that made national news. I could see the pile of clothes in the bottom of my closet and I just wanted to put them on so badly. So I kept walking kind of like in slow motion towards my clothes and in the background I could hear all these people screaming at me to put my hands on my head and that some of them had guns out and it finally hit me that this is how people get shot you know in these kind of scenarios and so I said okay I need to just put my hands on my head. Shortly after her arrest Activists in the community organized and rallied behind Shannon to show support, particularly organizers from the Sex Workers Outreach Project. That's where I believe her trajectory as a sex worker rights activist really launched through that arrest. Just like prohibition, you know, alcohol became an illegal substance and then there was just all this crime and violence associated with alcohol. And the same thing with sex work, that because it's criminalized, the real criminal activity gets pushed even deeper underground and is even harder to root out and find and deal with. And then, and also because of the prejudice, because I think it happens all the time that women who really have been trafficked don't get helped because people see them as prostitutes and see them as trash and won't help them underage girls who are being pimped and abused and treated really horribly don't get help because the police just see them as whores like all the other whores. She was a very ethical worker. She had just sort of a nine to five approach to sex work. It was just like, this is my work I do during the day like an office job. Everyone else has the ability to keep their private lives separate from their work lives and be professional in the workplace, but gays and lesbians can't and people doing any kind of sex work can't, you know, like there's this assumption that we're all perverts and have no boundaries and are unable to compartmentalize. There's a lot of uh, traumatized people in the sex worker community because of the social stigma, criminalization, and the community can be subject to sexual abuse. And, and Shannon was always so great just so able to listen to everyone's ideas and then come back with something very like just reasonable when you have somebody who can just be really practical and pragmatic about strategy while making space for people's emotional states and different personalities um, that's a really powerful asset to have in an organizing community and I think the community is just really, it's just taken a really long time to grieve for her loss. How you doing, Mom? My name is John Mataka, and I'm the president of the Grayson Neighborhood Council. Uh, the Grayson Neighborhood Council is a neighborhood group uh, that we formed in, in uh, 
Grayson, California, which is a, a community of a thousand people in low-income farm working community, primarily Mexican community. It's a grassroots group that deals with social justice and uh, environmental uh, racism issues. And uh, my son, Emiliano Machaca, was a founding member of our group, very active. Uh, our, my wife and I grew up as activists all of our life. We've been fighting one cause or another. And Emiliano just fell right, right in the groove. Uh, he is a natural at it. The Covanta incinerator was his pet peeve. That uh, is one of three garbage incinerators that uh, are in the state of California. I just want to explain this to you guys real quick. There's three incinerators in California. Where, where do you think they're located? Are they located in Tiburon? Blackhawk? No. They're located in Crow's Landing, Commerce City, and Long Beach, all low-income, Spanish-speaking communities. Is that by coincidence? No, they do that because they know that people are struggling in their everyday lives, that most of them don't have the time to be going to their city council meetings, to be going to their board of supervisor meetings. But we're here to say, we don't care where you're from. Incineration is not right. We need to recycle. We need to go to renewable energies, period. That's it. Uh, he also loved Cop Watch and doing the Know Your Rights for Young People. And there was a, a, a wonderful video about the time when the sheriff's deputy took his camera and then uh, the, the sheriff of Stanislaus County had to write a letter back apologizing, saying that it was illegal for his officer to do that. How you doing? Pretty good. How you doing, officer? Good. I need the camera. You need the camera? You, you're going to tape it. It's evidence. i got to take it as evidence. Um, no, I have the right to observe, officer. No, you don't. Yes, I'm I'm going to take officer. it as evidence. I'm going to tell you right now, you're taping something. It's evidence. Okay? So you need to give it to me. You understand me? I understand. I understand. I need to use this as evidence. I Okay. I understand that. With all the issues that are happening with the police, Emiliano was always there when locally, like in Stockton, when James Rivera was murdered by the Stockton police, you know, when Ernesto Duenas was murdered by the police in Manteca, California, he was there. When Rita Elias was killed and murdered by a sheriff's deputy in Stanislaus County, he was there. And all those things he took personally, you know, just like it was his own family. So that's what, that's what the community is going to miss. Somebody that really had a heart for other people and what was happening to other people. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Is there someone you think deserved to be featured in this show? A local organizer or activist who made a huge difference and passed away in 2015? Let us know on our Facebook page or Twitter feed. Our handle is making underscore contact. To get our podcast, check out our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you can download past shows and make a difference by supporting our work. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Jasmine Lopez, Laura Flynn, and Quan Booth. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. We now leave you with the words of Danny Schechter, the news dissector, who spent decades making media and critiquing a mainstream press that didn't represent us all. At ABC News, where I worked, people who worked there were known as the troops. There was an actual military metaphor about it. So stories are assigned, and how long a story is going to be, and where it's going to play, and how much time it's going to be given, and whether or not there's going to be a follow-up. All of those are decisions that journalists 
uh, don't make. The news has been taken out of the hands of journalists and has been put into the hands of sort of news managers and bean counters. The result is what we're watching on television, which is pretty disgraceful when it comes to the tradition of journalism or the potential of journalism to play a robust role in democracy. There is a need to know. We have a need to play a role in our world. We have a need to know about our world. And we're not being treated respectfully. We're being treated as if we're a bunch of dummies. If a story is a you know, uh, complicated, it's in a foreign country that you've never heard of, it involves, you know, factions or, you know, various uh, pressure groups or interest groups, you don't go into it because it takes too much time to explain. So you end up simplifying everything and sometimes by simplifying everything, you're actually uh, ending up with an inaccurate product. You know, news is about issues when it should be about interests. It should be about who's benefiting from this particular story. It should be asking the deeper questions.